that was, that was, that felt like professional intro because of the video. That was cool. And also the pulpit swap thing is hilarious because we don't have pulpits there or here. We just, music stand swap. We got a music stand swap. Hey, no, I really love the chance to be with you guys. Uh, it's been just so awesome. Every time I've been here at Mercy Vineyard, whether I've been preaching or just joining you for worship or something else, uh, we love you guys. I just absolutely believe that there's only one church of Jesus that just meets in different locations. Amen. And uh, we happen to be in locations that are on the same street now, really. So that's just fun. We love it. We love it. Um, and I think it's so important that we remember that uh, we're all on the same team. You know, we're all on the same team. And I thought it was just such a perfect illustration of how we're all on the same team that you guys are having a series about I Love the Twin Cities while we're having a series called Love Your Neighbor, which is basically the same. Okay, that was unplanned, unplanned, except by the Holy Spirit. It was planned, it was planned. So I Love the Twin Cities. We're talking about Love Your Neighbor. Same idea, what does it look like for us to live out Jesus' greatest commandment to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves? What does it look like for us to live that out? To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as yourself. What if we took Jesus seriously about that? We might have to know our neighbor's names first. Things like that might have to happen in our lives. Um, I have been giving people tips on how to get to know your neighbors. Of course, the word neighbors, we're gonna talk about it big picture today. But when you think about the people who live near you or work near you, the people you spend the most time around, that is the main way I'm gonna use the term neighbor today. When you think about that, I'm giving tips on how to connect with your neighbors. Simple things, okay? So today's tip is to join your neighborhood next door online. Who is on next door online? Okay. Nextdoor is amazing because it's like Facebook, but just for your neighborhood, okay? It's amazing because you can learn about things in your neighborhood and also because humans are hilarious. <laughs> People are funny. Not always trying to be funny, but they're still funny. And Nextdoor is a great place to see just how quirky and wonderful humans are. And so if you're not yet on your Nextdoor neighborhood, I, can, I encourage you to figure, just look into it, okay? So I brought, I'm in the Waite Park neighborhood. Anybody else live in Waite Park of Northeast here? There's a few people. Okay, so in Waite Park, I'm bringing you some highlights from the last couple of weeks of the Nextdoor neighborhood. Comic relief and updates on what's happening in our neighborhood online community. There's a lot of heartwarming stories about people helping find lost pets. That might be worth it just, for, just to help people find like they're cuddling with their dog. Um, and... We also have quite a few people trying to help find lost car keys, other things like that. Sharing vegetables, what a gift. There's someone rehoming this bearded dragon. I'm not sure if it's been rehomed yet, so it could be you. You could be the next home of this bearded dragon. Uh, there is someone who is desperately trying to find a fourth person for their pickleball doubles. That could be you. That's somebody here, maybe, I don't know. And then um, there's a lot of feral cat sightings in my neighborhood. Uh, lots of warnings about the feral cats. I have actually not seen one, but apparently. And then you can see in this picture, if you look really closely, there is, this is what was a, a quote. I would like to formally welcome a new neighbor to Waite Park. On Johnson Street is the most glorious giant skeleton. I adore him. That's a direct quote. Now, this is one of those giant skeletons that's taller than a two-story house here all year long in Waite Park. So, welcome to the neighborhood. So you can kind of see how it's a great way to just kind of get a pulse on what's going on in the neighborhood, right? 
But if we're going to talk about loving our neighbors, there's one um, tension I think that we just need to acknowledge, and that is that we don't always get along with our neighbors. I hope that's not just the Mill City people, right? We have some struggles. Okay, so we don't always get along with our neighbors, and next door unfortunately, shows that as well. So let me just give you a few quotes from uh, the next door, once again, the last couple of weeks. So I've got these emojis here to represent the feelings coming through online. Stop coming into my yard and stealing my rhubarb. I mean it. (laughs) And don't touch my lilacs either. Uh, Here's another one. People are parking in my driveway in front of my garage, and they will be towed and criminally accused of trespassing. Warning, all caps, there are cameras everywhere. (laughs) And then this is my favorite one. My neighbors have been playing music in their yard, and it's not the noise that bothers me. It's just that their taste in music is so incredibly depressing. And then they just said, please stop. That's at least, it's spelled in a way that I think it's stop. So those are the lighter examples, to be honest, right? We've all spent time online in other places, like other places online, more hateful comments are sometimes posted about different people groups. Moderators on Nextdoor often take things down pretty quick, but not before many of us see terrible racial slurs or ways in which people are degrading those who are in poverty, um, or other types of folks who might be marginalized. And you see an example in this little microchasm online of the norm that's become in our world, isn't it? Not just online, but in, in multiple places, you see how quickly people are to degrade other people and to put people down, and it comes from this deep place of brokenness in the world. And the brokenness that's inside of you and inside of me. But as Jesus followers, we have a special opportunity then, don't we? To live counterculturally as Jesus followers, to be peacemakers and bridge builders in a world full of conflict and burned bridges. Let me say this again. We can put it up on the screen, Brian. We have an opportunity to live counterculturally as peacemakers and bridge builders, bridge builders, peacemakers and bridge builders in a world of conflict and burned bridges. You see how we're in that world, right? And so it's countercultural for us to live this way. We get to live this way if we take Jesus seriously. We get to let the love of Jesus overcome the barriers that cause us to have separation between each other, don't we? We get to be people who follow Jesus' example to love the least of these as though they were the greatest. To follow Jesus' example to respond to a harsh enemy with deep love and compassion. This is what we get to be about. Now, Jesus speaks about this and models this throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels. We see all the stories of Jesus. I want to zoom in today on Luke's Gospel. In chapter 9 and 10, it culminates with a story that many of you have maybe heard about, the Good Samaritan, and we're not going to talk about that one today. But if you look at the two chapters leading up to the story of the Good Samaritan, where this question is asked of Jesus, who is my neighbor, right? I actually think that that Luke is building towards the story as Jesus is encountering different people and he's training his disciples and he's talking about how to live as those who would be ready to answer that question that culminates in chapter 10 in the story of the Good Samaritan. So we're gonna back up just a little bit and we're gonna look at Luke 9 if you have a Bible. And this question, who is my neighbor? I want you to hold that question with you today. Who is my neighbor? And I'm going to read this passage in three sections, and I think Jesus is kind of answering the question in three different ways. 
uh, that are connected. Who should we see as neighbors, the people that we are called to love in the name of Jesus? That's the question today. So in these three scenes, Jesus answers the question with three kind of categories of people, in my opinion. So in Luke 9, 43, um, where I pick it up, Jesus has been uh, teaching, he's been leading, he's been doing miracles, he's been healing people. And we start in verse 43 with the reaction. What's happening? What is the reaction? This is what it says in verse uh, 43. So we're in Luke 9, 43. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling about all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started amongst the disciples as to which one of them would be the greatest. Let's pause there. Jesus has just tried to explain that he's going to sacrificially give up his whole life for the sake of the world. And the disciples don't understand this, it says in the text. And before he knows it, Jesus recognizes that they are arguing about what? Who is the greatest among them? Right? I mean, the contrast is pretty stark, isn't it? Jesus is saying, I'm going to lay down my life. Do you understand? The disciples, yes, we need to figure out who's the best. And Jesus says, no, <laughs> that's not what we're trying to do here. That must be so frustrating, right? That must just be so frustrating for Jesus. But of course, he's endlessly patient. Now, in this culture, discussing status would not be that shocking. Um, that was something that happened a lot in the first century. Now, uh, publicly like this. Now, I don't know that we're that different, right? We might be a little more veiled or we're in Minnesota, so it's a little more indirect how we talk about status like this. And so how does Jesus respond to this? How does Jesus respond to the way that they are reacting? We pick it up uh, in verse 47. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. And then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. So I'm imagining that Jesus is recognizing that his last discussion, they didn't get it, right? So this time he's like, object lesson. So I'm going to look around, and, I, and, he, and he's going to get really practical, and he decides to bring up somebody who the disciples would perceive as having the least value. And so he pulls up a child, because in the first century, a small child would be perceived that way. Now, that's confusing to us a little bit, because in most dominant cultures in North America, that we value children more highly, right? So that's a little bit confusing. So let me invite you to think about maybe a different way, of, a different way that we can understand this. In the first century, they were thinking of children as through like a lens of economics, right? It turns out uh, the kids, they can't work very hard. They don't make a lot of money, it turns out. And it turns out also that the kids cost money. Was there really no amen for that in this room? I'm sure there is. Okay, I see a couple. Yeah, the, the kids cost money, but they don't make money, right? And so economically, they, are, they contribute so little. And so even though in our context, maybe we should think of it this way, let's think of it as people in our culture who we might see as economically insignificant. Maybe we can see people who we don't think uh, contribute that much intellectually. The people who we, we might not admit it, but we tend to think of these people as having the least value. Now the idea of who may be the least might be different for different people. And I invite you to be honest with yourself. What, what, is, what is the least among you? 
Jesus says, for it is the one who is least among you, who, among you all who is the greatest. So what if we ask the question, as we consider loving our neighbors, who is the least among us? Who among me is the least of these? Who among you is the least of these? In some ways, that depends on who we are and how we see people in the world. And if we have an honest moment, we're surrounded by people who we think of are the least often in our life. And Jesus invites us to see them as he does, as greatest in his eyes. So maybe it's somebody, let's just think about this. Maybe it's someone you view as uh, not taking a lot but not contributing a lot in society around you. Maybe it's a group of people that you tend to overlook. They're around you all the time, but you don't notice them. Or maybe it's something more practical. Maybe it's that really annoying person at work or that really annoying person in your neighborhood or at church. Somebody's like, am I the annoying person? But do you know what I mean? Like, we tend to so quickly be, ugh, you know? And it's just like this frustrating reality. I was talking to a neighbor the other day that lives near me, and um, maybe the better way to put it is she was talking at me. And uh, she, it was like stream of consciousness, which I'm sure I've done to some people before. So she just kept going and going. And somewhere in that litany of words, out comes the phrase, uh, I don't like to talk to that neighbor that lives a couple houses down from you because when he starts talking, he never stops. And I'm thinking, what in the world? The blind spots that we have here, right? So she, she you know, I get that. Who is the least among me? Who is the least among you? Do we see that Jesus invites them to see them as he does? The greatest. The least are the greatest. So as Jesus responds to the disciples here, they're, they're infighting amongst each other. So the question, who is, who is my neighbor, that's being posed at the end of this kind of culmination, well, clearly it's the least of these, based on what Jesus says. But notice it's those among them, not the least of these in my mind, away, far, far away somewhere, but close to them, among them. But also the people that, that they're closest to relationally, they're supposed to see as their neighbor, their friends, their family. This is an important thing for us to point out because sometimes we want to skip over those people to the other people because they're easier because we don't have to be around them all the time. But here Jesus is saying, your neighbor is your friends, those closest to you, especially the least of these amongst those who are closest to you. So the story continues in verse nine or verse 49, and I think they're bring, Jesus is kind of leading them into another experience, and, and it starts off with what John says to Jesus in this short part. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Forever, who, for whoever is not against you is for you. Now John, some of us know, is considered one of Jesus' closest friends. At this point, he arguably has spent more time with Jesus than any other disciple. And notice that guy's language is still, we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Jesus' response, for whoever is not against you is for you. John slips into something that we all slip into sometimes. And that is this us and them, right? Us and them. Here's somebody in this story, we don't know much about him. He's using the name of Jesus to try to set other people free. He's not using his own name, not another rabbi's name, not another God's name or some other faith system or something. He's not doing any of that. He's calling on the name of Jesus. But John's gut reaction is he's not one of us, though, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? 
Jesus shows you it's your friends, the closest to you, even the least of these, near you, but it's also those who should be your friends, but you've decided that they're your enemies. Sometimes we call that frenemies. That's a real word. Look it up now. It is in the dictionary now, frenemies. Somebody that should be your friend, but you've decided that they're your enemies. Who is your neighbor, your friends, and your frenemies? And it begs a question for all of us. Who have I assumed is against me? Who have I assumed is against me? Because Jesus says, whoever is not against you is for you. So that us versus them tendency that so many of us fall into, it creates this question sometimes where we assume that someone is against us. I mean, I'm gonna be really honest. When we think about Jesus followers, we see this, don't we? Between different groups of Jesus followers and churches, this us and this them. There is, please notice my sarcasm, there is a right way and a wrong way to be a Jesus follower. And just so everyone knows that in the last 2,000 years of the 2 billion Christians, we have the right answers. Spread the word. Mill City and Mercy, just us, probably. <laughs> Obviously, I'm being very sarcastic, but is it not how we come across sometimes? Is it not what sometimes we're led to really believe is true in our hearts? But Jesus says, for whoever is not against you is for you. I'd be willing to bet that every person in this room, myself included, have a conflict or have had a conflict with someone or some group of people who are claiming to also be Jesus followers. We have those conflicts, don't we? What if we were to humble ourselves and assume that we can't know their hearts? We're not totally sure if their faith in Jesus is sincere. We don't get to decide that, right? What if we were to go even further and to have peace in our hearts that we might not have it all right and accurate? Woo. And even if we are correct in a situation, do we see that the call from Jesus is to love them as neighbors regardless? Sometimes the difference of opinion, especially, especially amongst people in the world closest to you, especially amongst Jesus followers, that difference of opinion can feel really personal, can't it? In fact, it can be very hurtful sometimes. It can be very challenging to overcome those differences and believe that someone's not against you. But before we assume, like John did, it's worth asking, who have you assumed is against you, and are you sure that that's the case? Are you sure? Some of you maybe have realized, if you haven't, uh, these last few weeks, there's been a lot of chatter on the internet and other places about what it means for these people who believe that women shouldn't lead as pastors. Some of you heard this. If you haven't, don't look into it. It's just a thing that's happening. All right? Of course, the idea that people who follow Jesus don't believe that I should do what I'm doing feels personal to me, doesn't it? A little personal. Also to the other four women on my staff who are pastors, and you all have had many women pastors that are a part of this community and have been sent out from this community. It's a little personal. <laughs> and it hurts sometimes, I'm going to be honest, but I also have to say the reality is, is that I have friends who hold this view that women shouldn't be pastors. These are people that are my friends. I'm not saying it's easy to disagree about something so core to who I am, but these are my friends. And while that means our friendship can only go so deep, I don't believe that those who I am friends with are against me as a person, even though we disagree. They want God's best for me. I disagree about some things and they're, what, you know what I'm saying? Like I know that they're not against me as a person and I know they're not even against me and the ministry that God's called me to. We just sincerely love Jesus but disagree. I know they sincerely love Jesus 
because we're close enough for me to know that and to see the fruit of the Spirit in their life. But we have a disagreement. Now, I believe that God calls women to lead in all roles because of my study of Scripture, not in spite of Scripture, but because of it. I believe that. But the truth is, is that these folks have dug into Scripture too, and they're coming to a different conclusion than me. Is that something that means that they're against me? We have a different conclusion and we agree to disagree. You've heard that phrase before. Can we actually agree to disagree and to love each other anyway? Because this is a non-essential for following Jesus. And there's so many of those, aren't there? (laughs) And we've decided that we've got to put a couple extra things in there besides Jesus is our Lord and Savior and we want other people to know him. And the thing that we agree on, these friends of mine, is that we have a common passion that other people will come to know Jesus and experience the transformation that happens from the Holy Spirit in their life, that they would know that they are forgiven, that they are free, that they have a purpose and a mission to join God in renewing all things. We agree on that. I'm not saying it's easy, but that's the truth. When it comes to the friends that we might think are enemies, our frenemies, Jesus makes it clear they might not actually be against you. And even if they are, they are still your neighbors that Jesus calls you to love. All right, so friends and frenemies, someone's still trying to look up frenemies, just we're moving on. It's fine. The final scene in our story today shows just how far Jesus is willing to go in this whole neighbor thing, okay? So we're gonna pick it up in verse 51. I'm gonna read this last section. At the time, at, at, as the time approached for him, for Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent out messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, listen to this, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and then he and the disciples went on to another village. My goodness. This just follows what we were just reading, okay? Jesus, it says, has his sights set on Jerusalem. What does this mean? This means he is resolute to go to the cross. He's on his journey towards that, to give up his life for the whole world. And look at this map I can put up here on the screen for you. You can see that from where they are up in that yellow area in Galilee down to Jerusalem where the star is, where do they have to go? They have to go through Samaria. Who is in Samaria? Samaritans. Now, we don't want to get into all the details, but specifically Jerusalem, it was this bit, there was a lot going on. There is some bad blood between these two groups of people. It goes back a long way. And this is a, a situation that's actually kind of provoking that a little bit. And so this is a reality. You can't go around. You can't go over. You can't. You got to go through. They hear that the Samaritans are not pumped about Jesus coming through. And the disciples understandably get defensive of Jesus. That's okay. But then they take this idea out of the playbook of Elijah in 1st and 2nd Kings when uh, in in that suggestion that they pray that fire will come down from heaven and destroy the Samaritans. In that situation in the Old Testament, you can dig into that sometime, Elijah was dealing with violent killers, not annoyed Samaritans. Do you see the difference? And this is one of the reasons that Jesus gives the nickname to James and John, Sons of Thunder. Sons of thunder, he calls them. And we aren't told what Jesus says to them, but he turns and he rebukes them. 
And so before we assume that Jesus is being unnecessarily harsh, like look at what's happened here. These two men, Jesus has been investing in them. He's been teaching them about his reckless, extravagant love. They've been right there with him, watching him heal people and set people free and forgive people who didn't deserve it. They've been right there with Jesus the whole time. And then they get a little bit defensive and suggest destroying a whole city of people? Jesus is not who he has been showing himself to be if he didn't turn and rebuke this question, right? They are way out of line. Just like a parent who loves their child, Jesus cannot let that slide. Nuh-uh, right? So we don't know what Jesus said, but if it were me, it would include, have you not been paying attention for the last three years at all? And I was thinking about this encounter and the story, and I think that sometimes Jesus leads us right through what feels like enemy territory so that we will really get just how serious he is about this love your enemy thing. And we feel like we're led right through enemy territory because of it. Who are our neighbors? Our friends, our frenemies, and our full-on enemies. Our friends, our frenemies, and our full-on enemies. Jesus rebukes James and John Why did he rebuke them? Because he loves them. Can you see that? Can you see that Jesus, out of his love, he wants so much more for these guys. And he believes that there's more for them. And even though they were a bit dense in this story, right, Jesus changed their lives. The sons of thunder go on to be loving and compassionate men because we know more of their story, don't we? We know that James is known as the first disciple to be martyred which means that he follows Jesus' example of nonviolence and he gives up his whole life. The son of thunder. We know that John, well, he's known as the apostle of love. He wrote more about love in the New Testament, arguably, than anybody else. He, one of my favorite quotes, 1 John 4, 11, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. But this is John who wanted to call down fire on other people and Jesus was like, I'm not done with you, John. (laughs) Thank goodness. When I was uh, a kid, I was growing up with my dad and he got sick when I was really little and he died when I was a teenager. And um, I always think about it this time of year, Father's Day and all these things. My dad was not a perfect man. No one is, obviously. But he is someone who I remember as being loving and compassionate One of those guys who's not afraid to cry and to tell people how much he loves them. But I know that love and compassion was not what he experienced from his dad. And because of the relationship, the broken relationship he had with my grandpa, it led to my dad struggling with anger for a lot of his life. A deep struggle with anger. And what I know is that he got counseling and support when when my brother and I were really little he moved from his son of thunder days and away from that, even, I mean, he had to sometimes apologize for losing his temper just like anybody else. But angry is not how I remember my dad because he was willing to receive a rebuke from Jesus and to get support and help so he didn't have to be someone who lived on the cycle of his dad. He broke the cycle in our family of anger because he received the correction, rebuke. Correction is a good word. He received the correction from the Holy Spirit in his life. Can you imagine how different my life might have been? I think it's hard for us to ask ourselves this question. 
would we receive a rebuke from Jesus? Would we receive a correction in our lives? I, I get that that's tough for us to ask. Would we even ask Jesus, what needs to be corrected in me? Because you believe in me. I think sometimes Jesus believes in us more than we believe in ourselves. We might believe we can't change. We're always going to struggle with these people. We're always going to deal with these group of people that are just so hard to deal with. Perhaps there's a neighbor in your life or a group of people in your life that Jesus might have a loving word of rebuke for you. Jesus believes that we can change by the power and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps if you listened, you would hear Jesus' spirit whisper to yours, that neighbor or that family member that you struggle to love is made in my image. I can help you to love them. Would you consider asking me to help you? Maybe the Holy Spirit whispers to you. The Holy Spirit tends to give me a pep talk. I don't know. I don't get a lot of whispers. I get pep talks, okay? So this is a Jesus pep talk in this area for me. Jesus is always giving me loving pep talks because he loves me, right? It sounds like this. Seth, why are you judging that person before you've even gotten to know them? Maybe, Steph, I love you. What is the bias that you're bringing into the situation because of this person's ethnicity or their culture or their age? What do you need to check? Do you hear that correction in there? I hear that in my life. I also hear Jesus say this all the time. Do you think my love is enough or not? If you do, if you think it is, I can show you how to love even those who are the hardest to love. Stop doubting my power through you in your life. Receive my love and let it overflow onto the lives of the people around you. I hear that all the time. Will we listen to the loving correction or rebuke of Jesus' spirit that can transform our lives into lives of love? We would all sign up for a life of love, wouldn't we? Will we listen to the loving correction from Jesus' spirit that can give us transformation so our lives can be transformed into lives of love? Jesus can give us what it takes to love our neighbors, our friends, our frenemies, and our full-on enemies. So let's sum up these questions. We'll put them up on the screen here. Who among me is the least of these? Jesus says, for it is the one who is the least among you all who is the greatest. Second question, who have I assumed is against me? Jesus says, for whoever is not against you is for you. And then that last one, Will we listen to the loving correction of Jesus' spirit that can transform our lives into lives of love? I'll be honest with you, on bad days, I have trouble believing that Jesus' love can really transform my life or the lives of the people around us. There's, there's days that are hard, aren't there? There's days when I'm just like, you know what? This person is always gonna be hard to love. I'm never gonna get along with those people. It's just not gonna happen. But we can be changed we can believe it because we've seen it. You have seen it. I know you have. You've seen people who were sworn enemies lay down their swords and become siblings. You have seen relationships that seem like they could never be reconciled come back by the power of this Holy Spirit into reconciliation. We've seen that. This last week, we were celebrating in a way, right, that the last enslaved Africans learned 158 years ago that they were free. And look at all that has happened and look at all that has not happened yet. Do we believe that God's power is enough to give us strength to overcome? I know deep in our hearts we do believe. We believe that we can keep taking one step at a time. 
that barriers can be torn down, that bridges can be repaired, that even the hardest of hearts can be softened. There's so much brokenness, and I don't want to to make light of how much brokenness there is around us. But with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, anything is possible, but it starts with you and it starts with me. And a willingness to surrender to the Holy Spirit and to just say, let it begin with me. Soften my heart in the places that it needs to be softened. Correct me with your love so that I can be transformed. Would we start there? Would we surrender? Maybe we have to do it every day, I don't know. To let Love overcome the barriers. We have an opportunity to be peacemakers and bridge builders in a world full of division and burn bridges. And that will be different than the world around us, won't it? It will be so different. To respond to a harsh enemy with deep compassion and love like Jesus did. To be people who overcome barriers and follow Jesus' example of saying the least of these are the greatest. We get to be those people that receive the love that Jesus has for us so it can overflow out of our lives onto our friends and even our enemies. Who is my neighbor? Jesus says, it's all of those people right around you. And so I just wanna close with a prayer. The worship team can come up. This is one of my favorite prayers before we go into this ministry time uh, from Howard Thurman for his, from his book, The Inward Journey. Listen to this prayer as I pray it over us today that we would truly allow the Holy Spirit to make us an instrument of peace. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Teach me how to order my days, that with sure touch I may say the right word at the right time and in the right way, lest I betray the spirit of peace. Let me not be deceived by my own insecurity and weakness which would make me hurt another as I tried desperately to help myself. Keep watch with me, O my Father, over the days of my life that with abiding enthusiasm I may be in such possession of myself that each day I may offer to thee the full unhampered use of me in all my parts as an instrument of thy peace.